Now we're reading today in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 4, and if you're using a church Bible, I believe that will be on page 1030, 1030. Last uh, Sunday morning, we started a very short morning series um, on scenes in the life of our Savior. And I said last Sunday that there there are particular moments in Christ's life that we typically celebrate each year, uh, here usually limited to Christmas and Easter, and then if we remember uh, Ascension Sunday and if we remember also Pentecost, and these are the big moments in our Savior's life and ministry. But there are other big moments, and we're looking this month at four of them, uh, each of them with a specific geographical location that next time you're on a tour to Israel, your tour guide will say this is exactly the spot at which these things uh, happened, and uh, there's, there's only one of them you can be relatively certain about. And these these uh, four sites are, uh, first of all, at the river, when we thought about our Savior's baptism last Lord's Day. Uh, next Sunday, to fast forward on the mountain, and then the last Sunday of the month, God willing, in the garden, and today in the wilderness. And uh, you will see the connection immediately. So, page 1030, be helpful, I think, if you are able to follow along today. Let me uh, read uh, in here from verse 23 of chapter 3, just part of that verse, and then chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, and there follows the genealogy of Jesus. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Sometimes we look at things from the wrong point of view. And that's sometimes true also of the way uh, we read the Gospels, perhaps with the exception of everyone in this room. Let me try and uh, illustrate this. Uh, One of our uh, sons is a surgeon, and he does a lot of laparoscopic or keyhole surgery. And so I had an occasion to ask him what you always want to ask the surgeon but are too frightened to. And I said, this keyhole surgery, but what if the thing inside that you want to bring out is bigger than the hole you've made? (laughs) Now, I don't know what the percentage is, but half of you will be thinking, you mean you can't work that out? And the other half will be thinking, I've always wondered that too. (laughs) Our son belonged to the first half. Oh, Dad, he said, we make the thing small. We put in, I think he called it the crusher, which I'm sure is not the technical name, but something I could understand. And we make it small, put it in a bag small enough to bring out of the hole. And I thought... I would not have thought of that in a hundred years. And sometimes it's the same with passages of Scripture. I think in my experience, I've heard many sermons read, many bits and pieces of books where this passage is here to teach us how we should resist temptation. Jesus models for us how we should resist temptation. And undoubtedly, there are lessons we can learn from this passage about how we should resist temptation, but this passage is not here to teach us how we should resist temptation. For one thing, these temptations Jesus has are actually not like the temptations you have. If you think about it like this, the devil comes along to you and tempts you in three ways. Which of these three temptations would really be a temptation to you? Turn one of the stones into bread. That wouldn't be a temptation to me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. You would need to be off your head to want all the kingdoms of this world. That, That wouldn't be a temptation. Throw yourself down from the top of St. Peter's. That wouldn't be a temptation. So the fact of the matter is, these temptations that Jesus experiences are not temptations we should be looking at and thinking, that's just like me. What Luke means us to understand is, there is something absolutely unique about these temptations. And it's what's unique about these temptations that in a way is the key 
to understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And from that point of view, the big question to ask is not just what happened here, but why did these things happen? After all, why did Jesus go through this period of temptation at the beginning of his ministry? In any case, there was plenty of time for him to be tempted in the next three years. So there's something very specific about this experience in Jesus' life, and clearly it's here to teach us some very important things about Jesus. So that the point of this passage is not to is not to help us to think about the kind of temptations we have so that Jesus can be an example to us as to how we can overcome them. But what is there about what Jesus does that teaches us what it means for Him to be our Savior? And I think we can be helped to understand that in a number of different ways. First of all, by looking at these temptations as a whole. And Luke is tremendously helpful to us here because he, he paints in the, the background. He paints in the, the, the story of Jesus. He, he tells us now, as you fix your gaze upon Jesus, there are things that you need to remember about him. The first is, of course, that he has just been baptized. And his father has addressed him as he's come out of the water, as we saw last week, by combining two passages from the Old Testament. One is about the fact that he is God's son and king. And the other is that he is the servant of the Lord, described in the second half of Isaiah, who will become the servant who suffers for the sins of his people. But then Luke does something very different from Matthew. And strange. He tells us that Jesus is 30 years old, and then he gives us his genealogy. Now, Matthew puts the genealogy in the, in the sensible position, doesn't he? At the beginning of the story, this is the story up to the coming of Jesus. So, why does Luke put the genealogy in here? Well, if you look at the genealogy and remember Matthew's genealogy, I think you'll immediately see Luke's point. Matthew's genealogy takes us back to Abraham, the father of the nation. But Luke's genealogy takes us back to Adam, who is described here at the end of chapter 3 as the first human son of God. So Luke is, Luke is telling us, if you're going to understand what is happening to Jesus, you need to see his connection to Adam. And then, of course, he tells us that this event took place in the wilderness. Um, and in a way, that's another connection with Adam, isn't it? Adam is, is in this garden. 
But it's fairly clear in the early chapters of Genesis that outside, there's an outside to that garden, and outside that garden, although this is the good earth, outside the garden is a wilderness waiting to be cultivated, and Adam's task is to cultivate the wilderness. But Jesus is, he's, he's here to, to reverse what Adam had done, but he's not going back to the garden. He's in the wilderness that Adam had created. And he's not surrounded by trees from which he can eat absolutely everything except from one of them. There are no trees in the wilderness. There is no fruit in the wilderness. And he's there for 40 days. And he is hungry. And he is weak. And then the absolutely staggering thing that Luke tells us is that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit when he went into the wilderness. He returned from the Jordan, and, and notice the wording, he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. If, if you think of your own temptations, what happens? The, the temptation, as it were, comes to you. It finds a landing place in you. But there's something very different here about Jesus. The Spirit, the Spirit of God is, is, as it were, guiding His life and sending Him, leading Him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. Uh, Jesus is the assailant in this experience. If one can put it this way, Jesus is asking for this. And the whole picture that we are given here by Luke is of Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the Lord's King, marching into enemy-occupied territory to deal with the tempter, to deal with the evil one. He is not passive in his experience of temptation. What he's actually doing is going to war with the tempter in order to defeat him. Actually, Paul, I sometimes wonder, how much did Paul and his traveling physician Luke talk about the things that they wrote? And in a way, Paul gives us a real clue to the way Luke presents Jesus here when he speaks about Jesus as the, the second man and the last Adam. And the reason he sets Jesus' temptations in the context of the whole story of history is because what Jesus has come to do is to reverse what Adam has done. And there are all kinds of indications, as if we've time, we'll see later on in Luke's gospel, that, that drive home that point. Jesus has come as the liberator. That's the text of his sermon, isn't it? When he's in the synagogue in uh, Luke chapter 4. He, he preaches from presumably the prescribed passage for the day, which in the providence of God was about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him in order that the captives should be released. 
And so what we should see here is this marvelous picture that Luke gives to us of Jesus and the power of the Spirit striding into the wilderness in order to face down the enemy and in abject weakness after 40 days of fasting at his weakest and lowest point, he takes on the one who had brought Adam and the whole human race into disaster. I don't suppose that's ever been better expressed in hymns than in, in John Henry Newman's hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood that did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. And this, in a sense, is the, is the first, and because it's the first, it's a key battle in Jesus' ministry. And as we read as the passage goes on, he comes out of the battle in the power of the Spirit of God. So how does he gain the victory? Well, here perhaps it's helpful to look not only at the temptations in general, but at each of the temptations in particular, because they, they, all, have a, they all have a distinct nuance to them. The first of them is, see that stone, Jesus, turn it into bread. Now, remember the situation. He's not in the garden like Adam. He's not surrounded by fruit that he can eat to nourish him. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry, starving. He is weak. And this is, until we get to the cross, this is Jesus at his most humiliated. This is, this is Jesus, the, the second man in, in all his abject frailty. And uh, Satan comes along and said, that stone, you, you can turn that into bread. Now, the, the interesting thing is, later on, a few chapters later, a few months later, Jesus actually will do something as astonishing as turning a stone into bread. He'll, he'll turn fish and bread into fish and fish and fish and bread and bread and bread and bread and feed a multitude. So, why wouldn't he feed himself? But that's the point, isn't it? He feeds the multitude because he's there for them. If he turned this stone into bread, then he would only be doing it for himself. And it's, 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 it's interesting the way he responds uh, he, he cites these words from the, the book of Deuteronomy. And because it's such a short sentence, there are all kind of different ways you can emphasize different words. Man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. But emphasize it this way. Man shall not live by bread alone. And you see, Jesus has come here 
to do what the original man failed to do. And in order to do that, he cannot respond to this temptation by using the power of the Holy Spirit simply to satisfy his own physical needs. And this is, this is, this is almost like Eden in reverse, isn't it? Adam has everything to eat except this, this, the fruit of this one tree. And, and Satan says, turn that fruit into food for your stomach. And man who is not to live by either bread or fruit alone, but by the word that comes out of the mouth of God, listens to the voice of the serpent. And Jesus, with nothing to eat, listens to the voice of his heavenly Father. Because, of course, as, as you remember how Philippians 2 speaks about it, speaks about his humiliation in becoming a servant and taking the form of a man in order that he might do for us what we have failed to do and undo what Adam did with all its disastrous effects. And so he resists the temptation to turn the stone into bread. And then the second temptation, uh, those of you who are uh, eagle-eyed will know that the order in Matthew is different, uh, and probably because the theme in Matthew's gospel is the kingdom, and so the third temptation is about the kingdom. But Luke puts that temptation second. He takes Jesus, does the serpent, to a high place. And uh, you can imagine this. It's, it's really, it's vivid. And he says to him, he takes him up. We don't know how this took place, and probably there's not much point in speculating. He took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and then said, I'll give you all of these on one simple, brief condition that you worship me. And, and it's all yours. Now, I know, I am, I am tempted to think uh, that the devil is being fairly naive here. But the Bible does give us some indications that what happened when Adam fell was he forfeited the kingdoms of the world. He, he was created to be a, a miniature king in the earth, to rule over creation, to bless creation. But he forfeited that to the serpent. And are these little indications, aren't there, in the Scriptures when, when for example, Paul speaks about the evil one as the, as the, the God of this age who has blinded our minds? And when John says the whole world lies in the evil one, because he's, he hasn't snatched the kingdoms of this world out of the hands of God, but he snatched the kingdoms of this world out of the hands of Adam and the whole of humanity. Now, why would this have traction for Jesus? I said, I don't think it would have any special traction for me and probably not for you unless you've some wild ambition to rule the whole world. I mean, you might sing about it, but you wouldn't want it if it were offered to you. That's exactly the point. 
This is what Jesus wanted. Indeed, more than that, this is why Jesus had come into the world, and that's why it had traction. This is what he had been promised. Remember Psalm 2 that had been already cited at the baptism? My son, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And that great picture of the the Son of Man, the Messiah, in Daniel chapter 7, going to the Most High and receiving the kingdoms. And the vision that we've got in the book of Revelation, the, the, the praises of heaven because the kingdoms of this world are now become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. This is what he'd come into the world to get back. Uh, But you see, his father had sent him into the world to get it back by obedience, service, and sacrifice. And Satan is saying to him, I think, something very similar to what the serpent says to Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden, if your father really loved you, he would have let you eat all of the trees. Don't you, don't you see there's a little cynical element in your heavenly father that he says, you know, he encourages them to be little children. Don't do that. You never let me do anything. And that's exactly what he's inciting. He's saying, did your father set you in this marvelous garden and let you eat none of the fruit of these trees? And the little seed, excuse the pun, is planted into Eve's mind, and eventually she gives way. And you can see the force here. What kind of father would send his son into a wilderness without food? And what kind of father would ask his son to regain not what he lost, but when what human beings lost by pain and suffering and rejection and sacrifice. There is a better way. And Jesus reaches back in his memory, which I'm sure was stocked with perhaps a memory of the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures, and he plucks out this statement, hidden away in the Pentateuch, and says, but we worship the Lord our God, and Him alone we serve. To worship you, even to regain what God sent me into the world to regain, would be to cease to be the servant of my Father. And I'm committed to worshiping and serving him, even though it may mean the cross. To put it in imaginative terms, as Jesus is up there on that high place where he can see all the kingdoms of this world, on that high hilltop, he is able to see another smaller hilltop. There is a green hill far away, outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. 
And then not finished, the devil tries a third trick. He takes him up again. How? We do not know. He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, as we know from the scriptures, people were coming and going in the temple all day long. There were set sacrifices, times of prayer. And, and you can imagine this, this high pinnacle of the temple and all these worshippers who look like ants down there and the devil saying to him, now, just throw yourself down. And he becomes, he, this is him that is most subtle in a way because he uses the Bible. Um, I remember reading one of the early fathers, a man called Ephraim the Syrian, saying, you see, this is the trick that false teachers often use. They'll quote the Bible. And because it's the Bible, it has authority. And you should do what it says. But the wise man, and certainly the wise Savior, understands that it's the Bible rightly understood that is the Word of God, not falsely used. And Jesus, he, he does what we've all been taught to do. He compares Scripture with Scripture, doesn't he? He brings another Scripture to bear on the application that the devil makes, and he says, that's not what that text means. If I were to do that, I would be testing God. And again, you see the, 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 the message is this. If you, if you do this, they'll all be following you. If you do this, they'll all be following you. It's a bit like the cry at the cross, save yourself and us. There's another way to save them and save yourself the cross. But in the purposes of God, it's not possible that he should be able to save us and save himself. And again, he resists with another obscure verse from the Old Testament. If I were to do that, rather than trusting the Lord, as you suggest, now just show how much you trust the Lord, I would be testing the Lord. And I am not here to test the Lord. I am here to rerun the testing that Adam and Eve and the whole of the human race have failed in order that in standing fast and ultimately in bearing the consequences of their failure by not saving myself by doing something spectacular I will be able to save others. And so you see, as, as, we, as we read it, it's interesting, isn't it, that we see this is a lot to do with us, but our, our eyes are not on us. Our eyes are on this wonderful Savior. And as we read this, presumably the people in Galilee did not know about this incident but when the report went out about him through the surrounding country, their response was to glorify him. And when we, when we listen to what Luke is teaching us about our Savior, that's, I think, in every Christian heart, that's what we want. 
because Jesus is being, he is being tested. His ministry as a prophet is being tested. Speak the word and turn the stone into bread. His ministry as king is being tested. All the kingdoms of this world can be yours by an easier way. His ministry as priest is being tested in the temple. All you need to do is jump down rather than face the alternative, which is outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, to become the sacrifice that will end all the sacrifices of the temple. But then just in a moment, let's look as we close at the result of this. Jesus has been directed by the Holy Spirit. He is, he is at were, the, the director of operations, and he's led Jesus into the wilderness. And Jesus has in, in, engaged in conflict with the evil one. He is the assailant. He's come to reclaim what the evil one has stolen, to undo the damage the evil one has done. And then we begin to see something very marvelous in Luke's gospel, um, and it is really very marvelous. I, I think I could put it this way, that if you, if you forget about Luke chapter 2 at the end, where Jesus is there discussing uh, with the teachers in the temple, uh, Jesus has done nothing to this point in Luke's gospel. There's no preaching. There'll be no miracles. There'll be no wonderful acts. It's only when he has overcome the evil one that the wonderful acts begin. And these wonderful acts that begin tell us why it was that he was overcoming the evil one because his purpose was to undo what the evil one had done and was doing in people's lives. Remember later on in, in uh, I think it's in chapter 11, Jesus has a little parable where he says, you know, if, if you're going to deliver a household, you first of all need to bind the strong man who keeps that household in captivity and then you'll be able to release everyone and everything that's in the house. And that's what he's doing here. He is binding the strong man armed, and immediately we begin to see what the consequences are. It's very interesting if you, if you move over to, uh, towards the end of chapter 4, there's a little incident in between where it almost demonically driven, the synagogue people in Nazareth seek to destroy him. But then in the rest of the chapter, we get this little cameo of a day in the life of Jesus. And the, the big verb in that story is the verb rebuke. It's interesting, isn't it? He rebukes the demons. He even rebukes the sickness of uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. I won't repeat the old joke that uh, it's told by my Latin teacher. The oldest joke in literature in the world was about a mother-in-law, and that's very cruel. Um, he didn't rebuke 
Peter's mother-in-law. But he rebuked her sickness. Now, that's an odd expression, isn't it? We don't, we don't usually read of Jesus rebuking sickness. He heals. He gives sight. Uh, he cleanses lepers. He doesn't rebuke sickness. Why is that language used here? Because it's all in keeping with the signals that Luke is giving us in the result of the temptations of Jesus that having overcome the evil one, he's now undoing the influence of the evil one. Not in everybody. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't heal all of the sick. He doesn't deliver all those who are demon-possessed. Not yet. But you see what he's doing. He's taking the territory back. He's taking the kingdoms of this world back. He's undoing the results. Now, I presume Peter's mother-in-law's sickness was not because she had cursed Peter that morning and God had immediately sent judgment, but that this was the general effect of the fact that we live in a world that's sinned and fallen. And then there is sermon rage in the Capernaum synagogue. Sermon rage. There's actually often sermon rage during sermons, but we're more adept at keeping it inside. Occasionally you experience it coming out in in the service or sometimes at the church door, which is why I don't usually go to the church door. (laughs) And there's this eruption, this this antagonism towards Jesus and this, this poor man who may have been going to synagogue every Sabbath day in his life and this has never happened before. Nobody said to Jesus, you need to watch out for Benjamin there because he's likely to blow up when you're preaching. He's demon-possessed. But this demon sensed that uh, it, it couldn't remain silent in the presence of Jesus. And, and you get these incidents where Jesus, he, he rebukes evil and its influences because he has begun now, clearly he has not finished, but he's begun to win back the territory in the lives of people that Satan had been occupying. And these chapters from three, four, they're they're chapters in which you just see Jesus in his majestic conquest of the evil one and then in his ability to begin to liberate those who have been under the influence of the evil one as the New Testament teaches us in, in all kinds of different ways, each of us has been. And what's the great message? Well, the great message does have something to do with us, but only because of what it says about Jesus. And that is no matter what bondage you have been in, and indeed ultimately no matter from what sickness you suffer, now or in the future, the second man and the last Adam is able to set you free. And one day, if your sickness and weakness is 
not something subject to deliverance in this world. He will at the last day consummate the work that he began in the wilderness and transform these lowly bodies to be like his body of glory. And so Luke is saying, fix your eyes on him. He is majestic. And to use the words of of Hebrews, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Here's another hymn uh, that reflects on this. Who is he in yonder stall? You know that hymn? Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? Tis the Lord. Oh, wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. That's the message. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of the design of our salvation in and through our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for the test that he went through and for the faithfulness that he displayed, for the courage he showed, for the way in which even here in the wilderness before the cross, we, we get the feeling that he seems to love us more than he loves himself. We thank you that he did not, did not grasp his equality with God and think of himself, therefore, as not needing to go through this trial and suffering. But for our sakes, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant and came in, in human fashion and became absolutely obedient to death to the death of the cross, where he would finally overcome the evil one and begin the great day of the kingdom of God in which men and women and boys and girls are set free to live again for his glory. We pray you would keep our eyes fixed on him, help us to love him and trust him more and more. And this we pray in his name. Amen.